Hey, City Church, it's so good to see you guys. I, I miss seeing you in person so much, but honestly, I'm grateful that we live in a time and in a place where I can continue to lead you and speak to you via digital platforms. Now, ever since this pandemic began, I've been challenging those of us who are followers of Jesus to rise up, to be his hands and his feet, serving people who are in need during, you know, trying times like these. And I've also been calling on all of us to become who God sees in us. Because when we do that, when we, when we gather our strengths, our abilities, our talents, and our resources, and, and we move them in a way to make a difference in this world, in our community, in our city, uh, it, it brings the movement of Jesus in a meaningful way to those who are in need. Now, today we're going to be kicking off a series where we're going to explore the incomparable impact Jesus has had on human history and the human condition. And we're going to wrestle with uh, what it means for us to continue expanding Jesus' movement even today. Because, you know, normally after an influential person passes away, their impact begins to fade. But what's interesting about Jesus is after he left this earth, his impact has continued to grow. I mean, a hundred years after Jesus' departure, his impact uh, grew more than it and was greater than it was when Jesus was on the earth. And then a thousand years later, Jesus' followers and his movement continue to expand his influence in the world. And now, nearly 2,000 years after Jesus left this world behind, there are more people who are followers of Jesus in more places than ever before. And I propose to you that Jesus is the most pivotal person in human history. And what's interesting is that even people who do not call themselves followers of Jesus affirm that a reality. Consider what historian H.G. Wells said in his book, The Greatest Men in History. He says, a historian who doesn't even call himself a Christian, referring to himself, finds the picture centering irresistibly around the life and character of this most significant man. The historian's test of an individual's greatness is, did he start people to thinking along fresh lines with a vigor that persisted after him. By this test, Jesus stands first. Yale historian Yaroslav Pelikan agrees. He says, regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the most dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. So how does a relatively humble rabbi from a from an obscure town in a non-influential part of the world with no money, no political power, create a movement that has such a long-lasting and powerful and positive impact. I want to suggest to you it's not because his followers and, you know, the movement that he started, the church. I don't think it's because the church has the most inspiring buildings or the most inspiring um, um, religious rituals. I don't think because the church movement has the best music per se. I love our music, but maybe that's, I don't think that's, that's why his movement has had such an impact. I don't think it's because uh, the church movement has the best leaders or the best speakers of anybody in the world. I think Jesus' movement has had such a profound and powerful impact 
Because there have been so many thousands upon thousands of followers of Jesus who have embraced his radical way of life, who caught his vision to make this world a better place. I think Jesus' influence continues to grow because thousands and thousands of followers of Jesus have embraced his radical ethic. He taught us how to treat one another in ways nobody else had ever taught before. I mean, who calls on his followers to love his enemies and to pray for those who hurt us? And then I think Jesus' movement has had such influence because of his radical commandment. Jesus gave us one primary commandment, love one another. And then he called upon us to love all people, not just the people who are easy to love. He called us to love all people and especially, especially to love the marginalized and the vulnerable in our world. And so let's make no mistake about it. Jesus was radical. What he taught was radical. What he did was radical. And thousands upon thousands of followers of Jesus lived out his radical way of life. And this series, it matters a lot to me personally. You see, I grew up in a spiritual heritage that primarily focused on our future destiny. It focused on the afterlife. It focused on getting people into heaven. It focused on helping people experience eternal life one day rather than helping people experience a better life in the here and now. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm, I'm very grateful for my spiritual heritage, and I do believe in eternal life and the afterlife. But there's a critical and important part of Jesus' teaching that was all about trying to help uh, people experience a better life here and now. It was all about making this world a better place. And that's what we're going to be looking at in this series. Now, before we get into the, the, the meat of this series, let me just admit something. Uh, throughout history, the movement that Jesus started, the church movement, has not always gotten things right. In fact, if I could be honest, there have been times the church movement have gotten things tragically wrong. I mean, think about the Crusades. Think about the Inquisition. Think about the witch trials. Think about the times that the church was resistant to uh, learn, learning more about scientific discoveries. And then, of course, let's acknowledge that there has been uh, seasons throughout our history where scandals about money and scandals about sex have just flat out embarrassed us. It's been embarrassing. I mean, it's amazing that Jesus' movement ever survived. We, the followers, you know what I'm saying? And I think about those seasons. I think it's important for we, the followers of Jesus today, to admit the times when, when the church has not gotten it right and to confess it as sin and to repent of it. And so I'm just admitting to you the church has not always gotten things right. But when the followers of Jesus have returned to the purity of what he taught and embraced living the radical way of life that he left for us, we have gotten a lot of things right. And because of that, we have made this world a better place. Because of Jesus and his followers, children receive dignity and respect like they never had before. Because of Jesus and his followers, women were elevated to equality with men in a male-dominated world. And we're going to look at that next week. Because of Jesus and his followers, 
The sick and the diseased and the handicapped receive compassion instead of scorn. And because of Jesus and his followers, the characteristics of humility and servanthood, which were despised by the ancient world, became elevated as virtues and they remain virtues to this day. And we can point back to Jesus as the turning point when those characteristics became virtues and those characteristics do make our world a better place. And so if you are a follower of Jesus already, my hope is that this series will inspire you to rise up in your own unique way to be the hands and feet of Jesus and to continue his radical way of life today, especially during times like these with this pandemic going on. People need us to be Jesus' hands and feet, to serve those in need. And if to those of you who would say to me, you know, Pastor Brent, I'm still exploring, I'm still investigating this Jesus. Maybe you're not sure what you think about Jesus yet. Maybe you're not sure what you think about uh, his movement yet. I just want you to know that's okay. You're welcome here. I'm glad you're watching. But I do want you to know my goal, my hope for you is that through this series, you will examine the evidence. And I believe if you look at the evidence seriously with an open mind, you will see that Jesus is the pivotal figure in human history. And I propose to you that Jesus is the pivotal person in human history because he is who he said he was, the son of God. And my hope and prayer is that you would believe in him too and that you would become a part of his movement and follow him and that you too would help us rise up and make a dramatic and radical impact in our world today. Now, I want us to begin because of this worldwide pandemic. I want us to begin by looking at how Jesus transformed the way people in, in our world viewed the sick, the diseased, and the handicapped. And so I want us to begin in a, in a, uh, a situation that occurred during Jesus' earthly ministry where Jesus got the chance to correct a faulty view about those who are handicapped or diseased. This is John chapter nine, verse one. As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, that question seems very strange to us, doesn't it? But you see, the, the, um, the general uh, agreed assumption in the first century among uh, the ancient world, including the Jewish people, is that if somebody was handicapped or injured permanently, it probably was because somebody did something wrong. It's probably because they deserved it. In other words, if there's a bad effect, there had to be a bad cause behind it. In other words, everything has a reason. And so if, if you were uh, diseased or if you were handicapped, Somebody probably had done something wrong. And that's what the disciples are conveying here. But notice how Jesus responds to their question. This is John 9, verse 3. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. In other words, that's a faulty way of thinking. Jesus said, but this happens so the works of God might be displayed in him. And then Jesus healed the blind man. Now, First, I want us to see in this conversation and this uh, occurrence is first of all, Jesus corrects that faulty notion 
that if somebody in this case was blind or was handicapped, it's because somebody sinned. Somebody did something wrong, and so this person deserved it. It was like God's judgment against this person. Jesus corrects that way of thinking and says, no, that is not the truth. That's not the way things work in this life. But then secondly, I hope you noticed, Jesus said the right, he taught that the right question to ask about somebody who is uh, diseased or handicapped or sick is not why it happened, but what are you going to do about it? It's a what question. And because Jesus had the power to miraculously heal whomever he chose, that's what he did. He did something about it. And there became a certain characteristic, a certain quality of this aspect of Jesus' movement that just began to permeate Jesus' whole movement. And we see it uh, in one of the encounters Jesus had with another person who had a serious disease. He was a leper. And let me just explain, in Jesus' day, if you were a leper, uh, you know how we have to practice social distancing now for a season? If you were a leper, it was a serious skin disease that was very contagious and even fatal. And so if you had leprosy, you had to practice social dis distancing for the rest of your life. It was a horrible disease and a horrible way to live. Well, anyway, early in Jesus' ministry, uh, Jesus was traveling along and a, a man with leprosy came toward Jesus, knelt on the ground and begged Jesus to heal him. And then the scriptures say, this is Mark 141, if you wanna go check it out. The scriptures say that Jesus was filled with compassion. And then he did something nobody would do. He reached out and touched the leprous man and he healed him. And what we find is over and over throughout Jesus' ministry, he, he compassionately healed the lame, the blind, uh, the deaf. He healed people from all kinds of issues and all kinds of illnesses. Compassion for the sick permeated Jesus' movement. And it became like, like a key aspect of his brand. And, and let me ask you, I mean, if you've ever been seriously hurt or seriously ill or facing some kind of life-threatening disease or, or, or you, you have a handicap of some kind, isn't that what you want most? Compassionate care? And that's what Jesus set in motion as a critical aspect of his movement, that we approach those who are suffering physically in some way with compassionate care. But he wanted to make sure we get that this wasn't just something for him to do. He wants all of his followers to do it. And so he, later he cast vision on a different occasion for this aspect of his movement. And so let me set up the scene. Uh, it was a Sabbath day, which was a Saturday, which was when Jewish people would gather for worship. And so it's obvious that Jesus had worshiped and he probably taught that day. He was invited over to the house of a very prominent and wealthy Pharisee who had other very wealthy and prominent friends gather for this dinner. And so if you can imagine a, a large number of people, I'm guessing 30 to 50 people were gathered for this dinner. Well, a man came into the home who was not invited to the dinner, who had a serious illness. Uh, it's called edema, which is, is where your body fills with fluid and it's very painful and it can be life-threatening. So this man with a swelling of his, within his body came to Jesus. And the Pharisees, something you need to know about them, they did not believe because it was a Sabbath, they did not believe you should ever work on a Sabbath. And they considered healing the sick working on the Sabbath. 
Notice what Jesus does. This is Luke chapter 14, verse three. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts of the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. And so you almost get the sense that Jesus is shaking his head. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him away. Now the silence of the Pharisees speaks volumes about their lack of compassion toward human suffering. And the fact that Jesus asked them, is it lawful to heal this man on the Sabbath? It really made things tense in the room because Jesus already knew they didn't think he should do it. And they already knew Jesus could heal him. And Jesus ignored their own beliefs. And instead, he healed this man on a religious day and he made him whole and well. And after he sent this man away, which of course means, I hope you, hope you read between the lines, it means after this man was healed, instead of the Pharisee who was hosting the dinner, you know, celebrating and being excited that he got to witness a supernatural miracle and invite, inviting this man to eat with the, the dinner with him, instead of that, it's clear the, the host did not want that man there. And so Jesus sends him away. And it's like, as, as if to rebuke this Pharisee, Jesus cast vision for what he expected from his movement and those who followed him. Uh, and so this is Luke chapter 14, verse 12. Jesus said to his host, when you give a dinner, do not invite your friends or your rich neighbors. If you do that, they may invite you back so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed. And here, Jesus cast vision for a different kind of people and a different kind of place where the poor who can't afford health care can receive compassionate care and where the handicapped can receive the compassionate care that they need. And it's so evident that Jesus casting vision about this kind of pe people in these kinds of places stuck with those first followers of Jesus. And so when a brutal epidemic, a pandemic like we're experiencing, broke out in the second century in the Roman Empire, and scholars say now that it appears that this pandemic killed between one-third and one-fourth of all people in the Roman Empire, including the Roman Emperor Aurelius. Anyway, the, the, the way most people responded to this pandemic was with fear and in panic. But the church historian Dionysus records how the followers of Jesus rose up during this pandemic. And he writes, heedless of the danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And he notes in his uh, history of the early church that many of those believers, those followers of Jesus, lost their lives because they contracted the same disease. But they gave their lives doing what they felt like Jesus called them to do, which was to rise up and to show compassionate care to those who are suffering from disease or handicap. And in the early centuries of the church movement, leprosy continued to plague people. And so uh, two of the early church leaders who were brothers, Basil and Gregory, they decided they were going to do something about it. And so they, they raised money to build a place 
And then they uh, raised money to build a place to show compassionate care for lepers and for others with life-threatening diseases. And because they knew that the lepers and others who were suffering from diseases could not afford to pay for their care, uh, these brothers went to the different churches and they raised funds from the followers of Jesus so they could provide this care at no cost. And what developed out of what began from those two brothers, Basil and Gregory, is what we now know as hospitals. I mean, think about it. The reason so many hospitals all over Europe and the United States are Catholic and Baptist and Methodist and Lutheran and and Presbyterian is because the followers of Jesus from the very beginning believe that a part of his movement is to show compassionate care to the ill, to the diseased, and to the handicapped. And so, folks, this is a part, this is a part of our legacy as followers of Jesus. And, and some of you know that for years we have been partners with a program, a ministry that our church helped to establish in West Africa, one of the poorest nations in Africa uh, called Liberia now. It's in the nation of Liberia. And we established it to come alongside and help people in need. And one of the reasons that we partnered with the Uh, that we have partnered with the pastor who leads our efforts there in Liberia is because the very first time I met with Pastor Emmanuel Giamfi, he took me out to his church property. And as I walked onto his property, I saw the building, the auditorium where he met to have services like we have here at City Church. But then right beside his auditorium, there was a building that was twice its size. And it was a clinic that his church built to serve the entire community. It's the only clinic in the community serving about 40 to 50,000 people. And I thought, this man, this man has vision. He gets what Jesus is talking about. And that's why we have partnered with them ever since, ever since 2008. And folks, this is a part of our legacy. And so I'm calling on the followers of Jesus. Whenever you have opportunity, to rise up and show compassionate care to someone who is suffering physically, to someone who is suffering from a disease, to someone who has a handicap. You are becoming the hands and the feet of Jesus. And and this means a lot to me personally. Most of you don't know this, but over the last maybe year or so, my father uh, has lost his sight and he's become legally blind. And there have been numerous followers of Jesus who have risen up to help my dad and my mom and me and my sister to care, you know, for them. It matters. And so, uh, City Church, I am calling on you in your own unique way to rise up whenever you notice someone who needs compassionate care. Now, not only did Jesus really transformed the way people viewed, especially the handicapped and the diseased. He also transformed the way people viewed children. You see, in the ancient world, children were like on the lowest of the ladder, lowest step of the dignity ladder. I mean, that's why King Herod felt so confident and comfortable to slaughter dozens of male infants in the city of Bethlehem in an attempt to kill Jesus. And one of the philosophers who shaped the Greco-Roman world, you've probably heard of him before, Plato, he sort of summarized well how the ancient world viewed children. He wrote, 
Children are a mob of motley appetites, pains, and pleasures. None among all animals is so prone to tears. In other words, children are a nuisance. And in the Roman Empire, fathers could abandon unwanted babies. It's shocking to us today, but it, it was legal and it was practiced widely. The practice was called exposure. And so fathers, if they didn't want an infant child, they would abandon the baby either at the edge of, uh, by the bank of a river on the edge of a forest. Normally what they did was they took the infant out to the dump, the garbage place of the city where everybody dumped their refuge and where people went to the bathroom and he, they would leave the babies there. It's a horrible practice. Now, why would they do this? Sometimes they did it because of birth defects that they didn't want to deal with. Sometimes they did it because of suspected infidelity. Sometimes they did it for financial reasons. They just didn't think they could handle feeding another child. And then sometimes they did it because of gender preference. You know, if, if I'm gonna have to feed another child, I don't want it to be a girl. I want it to be a boy. And so they abandoned their babies. And the very few babies that were rescued, normally it was because somebody needed a slave and that child would be raised to become a slave. Now, the Jewish community rejected exposure, but they did have, they did have a challenging view toward children. They, they struggled with their view toward children. And we catch a glimpse of this from Jesus' own disciples in a certain scene. So this is... Uh, Mark 10, verse 13, and this is a scene where uh, Jesus is out with his disciples and some of the moms were bringing their little children to be blessed by Jesus. Mark 10, 13, people were bringing uh, children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he became indignant. Now, the disciples' response here shows uh, the very little respect that children had in the first century. And so the, the disciples viewed this whole wanting, uh, you know, moms wanting their kids to be blessed. They viewed them as getting in the way of what they were there to do. And so the disciples rebuked the mothers and the kids. And that made Jesus mad. So Jesus rebuked his disciples. And notice what he says in response. This is Mark 10, 14. Jesus said, let the little children come to me for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Now, it's hard for us to understand just how radical what Jesus just said was in his day. Nobody not even Jewish rabbis use children as examples of faith to follow. And here Jesus teaches us, using the example of a child, how we receive his kingdom, how we go into his kingdom, how we enter his kingdom. We enter his kingdom by receiving it, not by earning it. We enter his kingdom by receiving it like a child does, with simple trust. And then, Jesus cast vision. This is so significant. Jesus says, and my kingdom belongs to such as these little children. In other words, children don't have to wait until they get old enough to follow me. Whenever a child is ready to follow me and to become a part of my kingdom, let them come. And so you begin a relationship with Jesus 
and you become a part of his movement by with simple trust, with childlike faith, like those little children. And isn't that interesting? I mean, normally don't we tell children to behave more like adults and to act like adults? Well, here, Jesus tells adults to act more like children. And Jesus informs his followers that his kingdom, his kingdom belongs to children. And he goes beyond that. A little bit later in his public ministry, he got the opportunity to continue to cast vision for how he wanted his followers to treat children. And so here's what happened. Uh, Jesus' disciples came to him and they, they asked him, who was greatest in the kingdom? And by the way, let me say, whenever Jesus uses the term kingdom, it's simply a metaphor for his movement. It's about those who are following him and his movement. He called it a kingdom because that's, that's a term people in his day could understand. Anyway, they, they asked Jesus, his disciples asked him, who is the greatest in the kingdom? And we know that they were sort of beginning to jockey for the best position. They wanted to know who was gonna get the greatest position with the greatest power in the kingdom. Jesus did something truly radical. He called a little child to himself, which tells us that little children were traveling with them, learning from Jesus. And notice what he says. This is Matthew 18, three. Truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So once again, unless you come to me with a childlike faith, like a child does, a little child does, you'll never enter it. So that's about entering. And then he addresses, well, how do you, how do you become great in the kingdom? Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a child like this in my name welcomes me. Once again, Jesus points to children as an example to follow. And he says, if you want to be great in my kingdom, take the lowest position you can, just like these children. And we're going to look at this, this characteristic next week, humility and servanthood. But then Jesus says something that is so vision casting. He says at the end, whoever welcomes a child like this in my name welcomes me. And so he speaks to all of the whoevers who are going to follow him. And he tells them, the way you treat children is the way I feel like you're treating me. And so you better treat children well. And in doing so, he casts vision for his followers to respect children, to show dignity to children, to show compassionate care to children. And it's evident that the first followers of Jesus, they got it. They got this aspect of his uh, kingdom and his movement. Because if you, if you remember the, the practice of exposure in the first century, the first followers of Jesus rejected that practice. And they thought it was deplorable, but they didn't just sit around and hope that things would get better and hope that that would stop. They rose up and they did something about it. They systematically organized themselves. Think about this, to go to all of the places where the Romans would abandon their children and they would rescue the children and they would take them home and raise them as their own. Why would they do that? Why take the risk? Houses were small, food was scarce and expensive. And let's remember, these were Roman babies and the Romans were persecuting Christians. Why would Christians rescue Roman babies? Because they believed that love demanded it. 
They believe that following Jesus means showing respect and dignity and love to all children, no matter who they were. They believe that every child was created in God's image and deserved to have the chance to fulfill their calling in life. And so those first followers of Jesus, they rescue not only abandoned children, but orphan children. Why? Because children matter in Jesus' kingdom. And then those first followers of Jesus, they wanted to train these children because children can be in the kingdom of Jesus and they can follow Jesus and they belong to Jesus. So they gathered the children together and they created, we'll call them programs. They created programs to teach children about Jesus and about Jesus' teachings. And those earliest days of, of getting the children together to teach them about Jesus evolved into what we uh, ended up calling catechism. Uh, some people called it Sunday school. We here at City Church call it Kids City. But it goes all the way back to the first followers who thought, you know what? Children deserve to have the chance to learn about Jesus at the youngest age. Why would we spend the money and the time and the effort and build buildings for them and, and, and hire staff for them? And, and, and it takes hundreds of volunteers to do that. You know why we do it? Because children matter in Jesus' kingdom. And then in those, those early days of Christianity, one of the challenges they faced is life expectancy for adults was only about 30 years old. And so unfortunately in those days, there were many children who end up of being orphaned at an early age before they had grown up. And so the church began the practice of identifying another couple who would step in and adopt and raise someone else's children as their own uh, should their parents pass away. And we now call them godparents. Well, followers of Jesus started that because they believed children deserve dignity and respect and compassionate care. And what's so amazing is over time, as the followers of Jesus went to all of these sites where people were abandoning babies and rescued them, things began to change in the Roman world so that when a Roman wanted to abandon their child, instead of leaving their child at the dump, they would leave their children at a church or a monastery because they knew the followers of Jesus would take care of those children. And those first followers of Jesus developed what came to be known as orphanages so they can make sure they not only took care of the kids, but they could educate the kids. Why did they do it? Because children matter in Jesus' kingdom. And decade after decade and century after century, as the followers of Jesus rose up and showed compassionate care to the sick and showed respect and dignity to children, the skeptics, the unbelievers, even the enemies of the followers of Jesus became influenced by their sacrificial and selfless and radical love. And many of them became believers in Jesus and they began to follow him too, all because of the thousands upon thousands of followers of Jesus who embraced the radical teachings of Jesus and his radical way of life and his radical command of showing love to all people because all people deserve to be loved. And City Church, this is our legacy. And so I'm calling on you to rise up and in your own unique way, find ways to express radical love to those who are in need, to those who need compassion, to those children who need dignity and respect. By doing that, 
we will continue this legacy and we will expand it in our culture and in our world, especially during such a time as this. And if you're still wrestling with what you think about Jesus and and what you think about this movement, I get it. But I am asking you to examine the evidence. And I think as you look at more and more of the evidence of how Jesus uniquely changed the face of this world and the human condition in it in a positive way, I think it's because he is who he said he was, the son of the living God. And I'm asking you to believe in him too. Let's pray together. And if you've never believed in Jesus and become a part of his movement, why don't you just repeat this prayer out loud as I lead you through it. God, I do believe in you. And I do believe that Jesus is your son. I believe he is the most unique person in human history. And I believe he can forgive my sins and give me eternal life one day and a meaningful life today. And so I put my trust in him just like a child would. Thank you, Lord. And then Lord, I pray for all of us who call Jesus uh, the son of God and our savior I pray that we would all rise up and follow his radical way of life. And I pray that you would give us clarity of vision to see day by day, week by week, how we can uniquely be his hands and feet, serving our community, our neighborhood, and our city during such a time as this. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.